welcome to the Church Society podcast. I'm Ros Clark. I'm the Associate Director of Church Society. And today I am joined by Andrew Towner. Andrew, tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, I'm a vicar up in North Carlisle and I chair Church Society Council. Great. And I'm also joined by James Carey. James, who are you and what do you do? I'm James Carey. I'm actually a scriptwriter for the BBC, mostly. It's my day job. I'm also a member of the General Synod. I represent the Diocese of Bath and Wells, uh, which is where I live. And um, from the General Synod, I've also ended up as a member of the Archbishop's Council. Uh, but I suspect we'll get onto that later. Great. And certainly if you're watching in video, you may have been able to tell instantly which of the three of us work in television and radio uh, with, you know, the good lighting and the sharp focus and the clear sound. Anyway, it's nice to have a professional. And the edgy glasses and yeah. And the book in the background. There it is. Oh, did you write that, Jam? Did you write that? Yeah, amazing. You should have said. For those of us listening in audio, uh, James has got a copy of The Sacred Art of Joking prominently displayed on his bookshelf, available from all good booksellers, uh, I'm sure. Great. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about some of the, the sort of murky corners of the Church of England's structures and hierarchy that you might not know about. Uh, we're going to be getting some recommendations uh, and we're going to start uh, by talking about one of my very favourite things of all time. Uh, that is sleep. Uh, I I like sleeping. I do it most days and, and most nights. Uh, hopefully we all do. It's the thing I think I've seen a lot of people at the moment saying that with everything going on and all the disruptions to routine and the site kind of constant low level anxiety that people are struggling uh, with sleep. So I thought it'd be good to us to talk about it. And Andrew, I know you've done some thinking and, and reading on this subject. Just what, what is sleep and why do we do it? Brilliant. So scientifically, uh, the simple answer to why do we need sleep is that scientists don't quite know. Uh, they kind of know it's important. They know a number of things that happen while we are asleep. For example, it's really good for our memories. It's when our, our memory banks sort of ink in uh, good memories from the day so that sleeping uh, really well helps revision, for example. Um, it's when your body heals muscles. There are lots of scientific things. Um, we could talk about that. Uh, theologically, I, I think sleep is a basic reminder that we're not God. So that's the simplest way I could, I could think of putting it. So he who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, uh, Psalm 121. Uh, but we are created beings, we're, we're made of dust, we're designed to be dependent uh, and not independent. So God has life in himself and Andrew Towner doesn't have life in himself. Uh, Andrew Towner's made of dust, my life is sustained by my loving Heavenly Father. And sleep is a daily reminder that I'm a human being, that I'm meant to be dependent on God. In other words, it's a part of the createdness of the human being and part of the designed weakness of a human being. We're designed weak because we're designed to lean on someone. And that someone is our Heavenly Father, our loving God in Trinity. That's really, really helpful. I, as I was thinking about this, I was trying to work out the relationship between sleep, which is our, our daily rest, and Sabbath as weekly rest or uh, seven yearly rest or indeed eternal rest. Is is sleep just another form of Sabbath, do we think? I think Sabbath's active as well as restful. And I think rest in the Bible can be active. So think about the new creation when we'll be at rest, but we'll be building houses and living in them. We'll be tilling fields. Maybe I like gardening in the new creation. I think it's colossally unlikely, but it's possible because I will be transformed from one degree of glory into another. So rest. 
It's fine. I'll do your gardening and you can play my music and that'll be fine. Yeah. So, so rest isn't having a low pulse rate. Okay. Or isn't just having a low pulse rate. In other words, uh, on a day off, I'm going to get on my road bike and I'm going to get a really high pulse rate and I'm going to be doing so uh, in rest, if you like. Um, so Sabbath um, is more than the absence of your nine to five. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, Sabbath is really closely linked to salvation and being freed from slavery. And although it's a don't do certain things, it's also a don't do them so you can do other things. So it's really okay to have a high pulse rate on the Sabbath. Yeah, so maybe rather than suggesting sleep is a form of Sabbath, one of the things Sabbath does is similar to something that sleep does. So I was really struck by where you began with sort of sleep as an act of faith. Because I do think that's what Sabbath rest is supposed to be. It's that act of faith that God will keep feeding us, that God will keep providing for us, and, and God will keep sustaining the universe, even if I am not doing it. Especially that Sabbath year that none of the Israelites were ever faithful enough to actually keep. Because it's terrifying to you know stop doing anything for a year and just trust that God will provide for you. But I, I wonder if we've slightly lost some of that sense of, of the trust and dependence that we need to have in God when we lie down and go to sleep every night. I find it so helpful that verse the uh, God gives um, sorry not God gives sleep to those he loves that's that's the hardest verse when you're sleepless we can come to that in a moment. Yeah. Oh it's awful you're like okay and now also God doesn't love me great. Right yeah well I've struggled with that one but the whole um, he who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps is precisely why I can. So I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a Christian and therefore I'm a church member. I serve that church by being a senior pastor. So I have to say I can clock off because God doesn't. I had, had a mate years ago who'd been trained through some very, very, very um, impressive regiments of the British Army and um, had presumably been trained in sleep deprivation. And I remember being on a... Um, a crazy outdoor survival thing with him and he just had his first kid about six weeks ago and he said you know what I did when I had my first kid was I set my alarm for 30 minutes day and night and I would check that my child was breathing he said I've been trained by the British Army to to do to, to sleep deprivation all these sort of things he'd been one of the most famous and really really crazy the guys you want on your side regiments in the British Army and he said after 72 hours I'd begun to realize that I couldn't keep my child alive I'm like, mate, I could have saved you 72 hours. And I think there's something of that in Psalm 121, isn't there? So he who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. So my heavenly father and their heavenly father isn't asleep. So I can rest. I can put my head on my pillow. Jam, um, sorry, I'm going to call you that, but I'm going, to try, and remember to, I'm going to try and remember to call you James because that's your actual name. Yes. Um, uh, is sleep something that you've struggled with over the years? Uh, yes. Um, only, so... In a way, because I'm self-employed, I very rarely have to be anywhere at any given time. I could sleep to all hours. Uh, my sleep patterns changed when I got married. So before I got married, I would tend to go to bed at 1am and fall asleep listening to Five Live. Um, up all night with Rod Sharp. Um, and then I would wake up at about 9, uh, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. And that would just be the way I, I would operate. That is how teenage bodies are designed, by the way. So what you described yeah. there is precisely how 14 to 18-year-old men's bodies are designed to optimal work. Yes. Uh, so therefore, trying to, educate, trying to educate teenagers early in the morning is a total waste of time. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so that, that was a bit of a shift. 
my the thing I'm conscious of, particularly with with regards to sleep, and that I'm battling against, is my besetting sin uh, is self reliance. Mm -hmm. And if I have a problem, I think I can just get my head down and work through it. And the easiest thing to chuck away at that point is sleep. So if I've got a problem, I'll just stay up till 3 a.m. and fix it. Um, and I'll just do this, write that, uh, edit that, change that, do that, do that. Go to bed at three, get up at seven, do it again, keep doing, you know. So in a way, uh, learning for me, learning to sleep is not so much about uh, what we've been hinting at, about the, when, you're, when you're asleep, you're defenceless. Um, so I think that is a really uh, helpful way of thinking. And, and, uh, but for me, when I'm asleep, I am unproductive. Mm. And I, I hate that. Uh, and so I've had to work hard to Sabbath. Uh, so I try not to uh, do anything particularly productive on, on the Sabbath in terms of regard to work. Um, but also I try to make sure I do go to sleep, uh, you know, at a reasonable hour. And if I have work to do to get up early and do it, that's, that's fine. But to sort of push on through, push on through is, is, a, is a bad habit. And then that just sort of tips into something else, which I think is worth bearing in mind, is how uh, when people are tired, they make very poor decisions and they become quite grumpy and grouchy. And those things are sin. Uh, and therefore, I, I'm interested to, to, to see that actually, if we want to be fighting sin and to be disciplined, uh, then we do need sleep for that. So we need to depend on God for our sleep so that we can be uh, Christ-like. Uh, so for me, it's, it's, a, it's a mixture of those things. But I, I, I'm not, you know, I, I like sleep and I, you know, but I, 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 my, in, my instinct is sleep is a bit of an indulgence and a bit of a waste of time. Yeah. And I, I have to get over that. I definitely don't have to get over that. I, um, I really like sleep and I would always have said... I was not a morning person. I like a nice long lie-in and then a really slow, gradual start to the beginning of the day. So, and then an early night. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, and an afternoon nap. I mean, I'm, I'm not yeah. going to lie. I love an afternoon yeah. nap. Um, when, I, when I was at Oak Hill, in our first year, we used to have Greek tests at eight o'clock on a Thursday morning. And then halfway through the year, they changed to, I can't remember, two o'clock in the afternoon or something. And my, my average mark went up noticeably between the, those two halves of the year and so, mine and mine but so i had a real revelation about this uh, a couple of years ago when i started doing um low carb diet and genuinely i found i wasn't like i'd ever particularly struggled to sleep for but i found i would go to sleep much more quickly and i would wake up before my alarm clock went off wow. and not only that i'd wake up and not just think oh that's great because now i can go back to sleep for another little nap and have a doze and whatever i'd wake up and i'd be like oh well maybe i should just get up and do some things then and yeah. like be ready to go so just the the kind of it's one of those things where it's really obvious how we are whole people mm. because there's so much about our sort of physical way of life that's connected with sleep, but also our mental and emotional and spiritual state is really bound up with sleep as well. Yeah. And I think sometimes we we focus only on one or two of those things. We think I'm not sleeping because I'm really anxious or I'm you know not sleeping enough because I'm this or that or the other. But actually, we need to think about our whole... And that's why, and that's yeah. why I kicked off with weakness, actually, because... Mm -hmm. 
Um, you need a really good answer at 3.30 in the morning to the question, listen, sleep's really good for me, mm. God. Um, and I'm right here, ready to sleep. <laughs> and you've chosen that I should be awake at three o'clock in the morning. And I know that'll make me more grumpy. I know that'll make my memory less good today. I know that'll make my mm. compassion less effective. I recognize those sins that Jan was talking about. Mm. And I love people. Yeah. And, and this is going to hurt mm. them and me. So yeah. why am I awake? And, and that's why we, so weakness is the best way that I have through that. Other people might have better ways through that. But once I say that I'm designed to be weak in a whole bunch of different ways and sleep is just one of them. Mm. Okay, so God could have made humans that needed 10 minutes sleep. He designed us to have eight hours sleep. God could have made humans with perfect memories, but he gave us imperfect memories and so on. Now, whether that's the, the fault of the fall or not, it seems to me in the new creation, we're still mm. not going to be God. We're still going to be dependent beings. We're not going to be transformed into being Jesus, but we are going to be sinless. We're not going to have life in ourselves. We're still going to be dependent. So the best answer I've got for the why am I awake at three o'clock in the morning is that I'm designed to be weak. I'm designed to lean on someone who's not weak. And my father needs me to be weak in all sorts of different ways for his glory to be shown because his power is made perfect in weakness. Otherwise, I naturally champ at the bit of... Come on, Father, this is not useful. So weakness is my helpful way through that, that's all. I suspect uh, the, if you're awake at three in the morning, it's quite likely you're worried. Uh, worry, I think, is worry and anxiety is quite a big... Because also you then start to get worried that you're not going to sleep um, and you get into a bit of a downward cycle. But overall, I think there is one of the things that stops people from sleeping is worry. And it is interesting to me how many I've been reading a lot of Psalms, like a lot of people, especially during lockdown and watching a lot of people talk about Psalms. Matt, Matt Searles and Mike Kane are both doing some really helpful Psalm unpacking. And boy, how many Psalms say, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. It might be the most common command in the Bible is don't worry because we are prone to worry and therefore we need to be told this endlessly. Um, so, Absolutely. And I, I'm always really struck as well. And you've already mentioned some of it, Andrew, but how often the Psalms actually talk about sleep. So one of my favourite is Psalm 3. So David's there, you know, surrounded by his enemies, absolutely terrified. And in the middle of that Psalm, you know, he's, well, he's, you know, he's, he's got the enemies and then he says, well, you know, God's looking after you, God's looking after me. So what does he do? I lie down and sleep. And I wake again because the Lord sustains me. And, mm. you know, most of us aren't surrounded by actual warriors with, with swords and, and spears and, and so on coming to attack us. But but whatever it is we are worried about, we can say to you know what, God is our shield. So actually it's all right. I can just lie down and sleep and the Lord will sustain me and it will be all right. Really interesting. Anyway, we need to move on. But um, yeah, if you are struggling with sleep, may, maybe try reading some Psalms uh, and uh, praying about that as well. And there's a there's a book, isn't there? Um, is it by Matthew somebody, Matthew Side or something? Is that oh, right? Oh, the one about sleep. Why Matthew we sleep? Matthew Walker, why we sleep? There we go. Yes. Do you want a really brief? So Matthew Walker, why we sleep? That's the high level academic one. Next step down, rest mm. in the sort of the sort of light, lighter penguin ones. Uh, that's a broader thing. Even talks about Sabbath in there. If you want the simple one, this is the sleep doctor to Manchester United Sky cycling and stuff really good top tips about how to set up your um bedroom and then two christian uh, explicitly christian ones this is a fantastic book and there's a different colored 
It's called Reset uh, by David Murray, living a grace-paced life in a burnout culture. Uh, read once a year and then read with a friend. I've given away so many copies of that. And then obviously Zeal Without Burnout by Christopher Ashe. Absolutely marvellous. Um, and I think both Reset and Zeal Without Burnout are just gorgeous books. So helpful, really honest, really clear, pastoral. Yeah, yeah. highly recommended. Wonderful. Thank you. Good. Well, let's move on. And like I said, we're going to be talking about uh, some of those uh, corners of the Church of England hierarchy that you might not know about. To be fair, I think most of us in the Church of England don't really know anything about what it is as an organisation or how it works. I remember when I started working for Litchfield Diocese, the uh, diocesan secretary sat me down one day and said, Ros, do you know how the diocese works? And I'm like, no, I have no idea. So she's like, right, I'll, I'll draw you a diagram to explain and, you know, by the time we were on sort of three sheets of A3 and and I and so I just said, so how, how does a decision get made? And she just looked at me and said, yeah, I mean, yeah. You spotted it, haven't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So it is a complicated organisation. Um, so, James, you said a little bit at the beginning, you're on General Synod. You're also on yeah. a committee called the Archbishop's Council. I mean, that sounds very important. What, it does. What, what is the Archbishop's Council and, and what does it do? I'm, I still don't really know. Um, but uh, it's, it's one of those uh, institutes. It's, it's almost, like, um, almost like a board for the Church of England in some ways. B-O-A-R-D, <laughs> not B-O-R-E-D. That's, that's just a description of some of the meetings. Um, but it is, in a way, kind of looking at fairly headliney stuff in a way that isn't so you've sort of the 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 main power bases within the church of england i guess are the general synod and also the house of bishops uh or the college of bishops i can't quite remember how it's how that's put and then archbishop's council and there's an element of checks and balances and they sort of share a certain amount of administrative staff as well and um so yeah so in a way no one of those three institutions can tell the other two what to do um, in the same way that those three institutions can get together and tell uh, a diocese what to do. And the diocese can take full consideration of those views and then completely ignore them in the same way that the, a bishop can tell a parish what to do. And the PCC is a separate legal entity and they can take full consideration of what the bishop tells them to do and decide to do it in their own way i think they are slightly obliged to <laughs> i think it depends tells them to it do. depends quite what the bishop's telling them to do how much well they, there you go you and so take. yeah so and i don't think anyone's been taken to consistory courts for disobeying bishops uh, uh particularly very often recently but anyway um i don't even know if they still exist uh but uh <laughs> yeah they do but but you get the idea and in a way one can get all cross about that. But in another sense, you can say, well, this makes it a very resilient organisation because although it stops good ideas from spreading very quickly, it also stops bad ideas from uh, spreading very quickly. Mm -hmm. So therefore, there is lots of room for very good uh, evangelical uh, Anglican work to go on. And that, for me, is the main reason that I'm in General Synod, is that I I see it as as my job to... uh, even though there are other forces at work within the Church of England, which I, I don't particularly uh, think are a very good idea, uh, I I want to protect the uh, the really good work that is going on, um, and work out ways in which it can also flourish, 
uh, because uh, orthodox evangelical ministry, I think, which which teaches the Bible, is how the Church of England is going to grow and prosper and flourish. Um, yeah. And so that's that's why. And so uh, and so as a member of the General Sin, I'll just uh, finish the mm -hmm. explanation. The, the, the Archbishop's Council is a mixture of uh, elected and appointed representatives and the elected ones are elected from, I think, uh, the General Synod. So as a member of the House of Laity in the General Synod, they have two members on the Archbishop's Council. There was a vacancy um, last year because um, uh, Canon uh, Mark Russell uh, had to step down because he took on another role, which meant that he he could not uh, continue in that way. So it came up, and I threw my hat into the ring, and uh, I got elected. Um, Great. So, so, uh, so, so here is, I am. That is kind of my my next question, which you sort of begun to answer there. If somebody's mm. listening, thinking, actually, I I think that is right. That would be great to have more evangelicals involved in in different sorts of ways, uh, enabling good ministry ministry to flourish, and and so on. Mm. Um, probably you don't begin by throwing your hat into the ring for Archbishop's Council. Um, no. What 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 might be some good starting points for people thinking about that? Well, I mean, in a way, I went from a bit of a standing start to General Synod, and there's not in a way there's nothing to stop you from doing that, um, and so uh, that's worth considering. All elections pretty much have been postponed to 2021, so there's no need to rush out and do anything anytime soon. Um, but there was a vacancy and and I I sort of sense that because I'm a I work for the BBC because I'm comparatively young compared to most other people standing. Um and I have two good looking daughters yes. who I can have a photograph of me with on my election manifesto, uh, or election address, then I thought I actually stand quite a good chance of being elected. And actually for, I got more votes than anybody else, um, including other people who've been on General Synod for twenty years. But that's purely because the people who are voting for you are are lay members of deanery synods. Yeah. And they're not aware of most of these church political issues that are going on. They're not terribly interested in much of the politics. And they just think, oh, they're young. Uh, I'll vote for them. It's really <laughs> you know? great, isn't it? The church pregnant is definitely still a place where, certainly if you're in your 40s, and I mm. suspect possibly even if you're in your 50s, you can yeah. still be in the young category. Absolutely, yes. And I enjoy yes. that very much. But I think yeah. that is really worth yeah. thinking about when people are thinking about standing for election. Yeah. yeah. So so in a way, the general synod is, is still up for grabs, as it were. And, the, and if that's of interest to you, then talk to your, your, your DEF, your Diocesan Evangelical Fellowship, and they'll be able to yeah. um, advise you further. But on a very basic level, it is worth just thinking... Can I serve on the PCC and can I be the PC's representative on the deanery synod? And so that is the the local area that your parish is a member of a bunch of other parishes. And you look for ways in which you can cooperate and help each other. In my experience, the deanery synod is quite frustrating because it turns out that people involved in individual parishes aren't terribly interested in what's going on in other people's parishes. But that is not universally the case. Um, no, I've been and, to a lot of deanery synod yeah. meetings uh, over the years in different deaneries, and and they do vary quite significantly. Yeah. Some are some are doing some really great things, and and others less so. Yeah. Um, Andrew, I just want to bring you in here as well. So we've heard um, from James a little bit about getting involved at parish level and at national level. I want to ask you about your involvement in the diocese. Um, so you're involved with the board of education, is that right? 
That's right, yeah, I chair the Board of Education, the DBE for Carlisle Diocese. And why does the diocese have a Board of Education and what does it do? I genuinely, when I started to work for the diocese, I had no idea. I thought it must be about like Sunday school or whatever, but it's not, is it? Not at all, no. So uh, public education was the idea of the Church of England. So the Church of England was involved in free schools for all 50 years before the government caught up. We're delighted that the government caught up, but uh, sometimes the government seems to forget that it was actually us, not them. And some of the language that gets used is um, is slightly ahistorical, I think. So about 300 years ago, the Church of England started developing these these free public schools for all. And um, by public schools, I don't mean private public schools, I mean public public schools. And the um, government kicked in about 250 years ago, mainly through the work of some good old evangelical uh, campaigns. And uh, so I, I chair the Board of Education, which has some oversight of a third of the schools in Cumbria, as it happens. So different dioceses will have different uh, numbers of Church of England schools. We don't have any... Uh, formal engagement with uh, voluntary VA and VC, uh, voluntary, um, sorry, with community schools, but we have um, all sorts of different uh, engagement with uh, Church of England schools, secondary and primary. And uh, that doesn't mean that we take over from what the council do or what the government do, but it means we sit alongside that. So we have all sorts of influence. Uh, We have a role in appointing uh, heads, for example. We have a role in in, um, appointing... um, uh, governors that are Christians, so foundation governors and training governors and training chairs of governors and training all sorts of people through the schools. So we have a huge amount of influence. So, for example, in the last nine, ten weeks, I've got a direct line to all the heads of the of the church schools in the mm-hmm. county, a third of the head teachers in the county, a third of the chairs of governors in the county. That's massive. So we can engage with support and encouragement and pastoral care and all sorts of things, uh, which is marvellous. And it's one of those things that if we didn't have it, we'd want it. It's. I think it's extraordinary the the scale of the influence there. So, particularly now that most schools are moving to academy rather than LEA uh, funding, I think that makes if you were to put all the dioceses together, the Church of England is the largest provider of education in in the UK. It, it it's, oh, it's quite extraordinary. It's massively, yeah. but it has been for ages. Yeah, and um, I've forgotten the figures, but it's, it's huge numbers that are educated within the Church of England. And I think something like 70% of parents would like their children to be in a C of E school. Wow. So it's not wow. only the biggest one, but it's the most popular one by an absolute country That's mile. very interesting. So it's clearly mm. serving well beyond the, the scope of the people that we get in our Church of England churches um, on a Sunday, isn't it? What sort of what sort of opportunities have you had as a Christian? Uh, I mean, as a Christian, I hope everybody who's involved in the Dyson Board of Education, but but as an evangelical being involved in that, have there been issues that have come up where you've been able to offer, think about that in a particularly Christian kind of way? What sort of support you can offer? Or, uh, yeah. I mean, all the time. I mean, I've, all the time. When I took over, we were in need of a Dyson vision for education. And there was a big national vision that had been worked up that's really outstanding. And then we had um, a chance just to ink that into our local context. So church schools are not about um, Sunday schools. They're not about proselytising, but they are church schools. And we, we believe that life in all its fullness is offered through the Lord Jesus Christ and through him alone. We believe that uh, the Holy Spirit in a person makes a real difference that person's life. We believe that, that grace and forgiveness and hope and all these things are found in the Lord Jesus Christ and are really good for human beings. And so we're unashamed of the, the goodness of the kingdom of God, uh, but we're not proselytizing. Um, so there's a, there's a sort of narrow thing there. So the, the language that Justin Welby came up with is that we're church schools for all, 
for Jesus' sake, which I think is really helpful language. So they are for all, um, but we are, we're doing it for Jesus' sake. So remember, think back years ago to all this push about not having Jesus in the workplace. You know, leave your religion at the door. And you want to sit down with your boss and say, now, just to, just to be clear, boss, the reason I don't gossip about you is because I'm a Christian. You want me to leave that at the door? The reason I forgive you um, is because I'm a Christian. You want me to leave that at the door? The reason I don't steal from you is because I'm a Christian. You want me to leave that at the door? We'll flip that around and say, we want all those things in school. We want the non-gossiping. We want the proactive forgiving. We recognise there's some real brilliance in uh, the kingdom of God. And we want schools that uh, embody that, that ethos. Yeah. And yeah. certainly a number of friends of mine have become Christians or have learnt of Christianity primarily through uh, church in the schools. And recent history is brilliant on church in the schools, by the way, which it goes back to the middle of the Second World War. So in the middle of the Second World War, there's a whole chunk of theology being done around community. What country do we want to be at the end of the Second World War? And the two big theological pieces of work that were done were around schools and around the NHS. Hmm. So it's really striking that these were... Uh, reset designs to bless the world so they're for all for Jesus sake and some of the writing there in the mid 40s was utterly gorgeous that's so helpful I think um so often the sort of uh dialogue around uh church schools and and uh Christian involvement in schools recently has been quite defensive and negative people very concerned uh, for example, about some of the, the teaching around sexuality and gender that's going on in schools, and, and rightly so. But it's really helpful to remember that in addition to wanting to be able to have an influence and 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 so on around those topics, that we actually have a really positive vision say, actually, we think that the Christian worldview around education is the best worldview around education. And therefore, it will not only be the best way of witnessing to, to Christ, but also will be the best for enabling those students to flourish in in every aspect of their lives. If somebody is listening to this who's a teacher or perhaps a retired teacher or, um, I don't know, if somebody who doesn't have any involvement in education thinks, I'd really like to be involved in that, how how would they get involved? I guess the natural thing to do would be to find out what their parish's involvement with, with schools is. Um, I'm, I'm a governor at a local church school and at a local community school um, as part of being salt and light, serving your local community um, and just being known as a Christian, I guess, being a distinctive Christian difference. And, and it really varies. So some schools haven't got almost any community engagement through the church. So the simple thing to do there is bake some cupcakes, knock on the door whenever you're allowed to you know, do those things again and say, and just say, Guys, thanks so much for what you're doing. It must be extraordinarily hard being a teacher. Um, here's 16 cupcakes. Um, can I bring you some more back next week? Or volunteer to read uh, with some of the kids in school. Loads of kids don't get read with it at school. Do you know 9% of children in this country don't have a single book? That's frightening, isn't it? We had, I don't know if it's still active actually, but in Lichfield Diocese, we had a whole little scheme that was just called Pray, Bake, Read. And it was, what can you do for your local school? Pray for them bake something for them, offer to go in and read with the children. And so many churches adopted it as just a way of blessing their, their local church school and being involved. It was wonderful. Yes, to all of that. Can I just come back on your thing about the defensiveness as well? Because I think that's so helpful. And I think it links in with what you were talking to Jam about earlier. Um, and I'm going to show our, our communal ages here by quoting CJ Craig. Um, but CJ Craig in the West Wing, rock the vote. Decisions are made by those who turn up. So you want a better DBE in your diocese? Turn up. Uh, you want a better Christian engagement in your school? Turn up. Uh, you want the Church of England to be more and more evangelical? Turn up. But I, I, I feel fairly passionately that if someone doesn't vote, they don't get to complain about our yeah. politicians. 
Absolutely. And I, and I think the same thing's true in the Church of England. Now, if you turn up and you prayerfully do your best and you get knocked back and you don't get any committees, then, then that's great. Use that time to do something else. But yeah. um, decisions are made by those who turn up, pray and turn up. Yes, and, I think that's right. Complaint. And so diocesan boards of education um, are uh, people who are diocesan synod reps get to I think I think we had I'm on diocesan synod and we had a thing you know can you vote for your education people oh yeah look it's, it varies in different dioceses because varies okay. in different dioceses you've got unincorporated and incorporated boards of education there's loads of different ways of getting on so our board is a third local head teachers a third local clergy and a third uh, community members um, but some of those are put on by by dozen synod. So find out, talk to your diocese, see what see what the situation is, see how you could offer to help and get involved. I got involved. I got involved by turning up. By the way, so I got involved by being on diocesan board of finance and being one of the dozen people who had oversight of all our millions and millions of pounds in Cumbria. And it was through that that I got involved in um, the DBE. So it's kind of turning up that actually might open the door to more turning up, if you like. Great. Briefly, James. I was going to say. Uh, I don't know how many times Woody Allen's been quoted on this podcast, but he says exactly the same thing, which is 80% of success is showing up. Yeah, there you go. So uh, let's all show up a bit more. We've succeeded right. at this podcast. Well done, us. Yeah. Um, good. Well, let's just move on. Uh, uh, every week I like to ask people for recommendations. Last week I didn't have any because I just run out. But this week I've got I've got one or two for you. Um, related a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, I have been reading The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, by John Mark Comer, which I'm not sure I would say is the best written book I've ever read, but I am enjoying the subject very much. And that idea, not so much of, of kind of building in the patterns of sleep that we we're talking about, but you know, life doesn't have to be lived frenetically and God is patient and love is patient. And those have been quite good reminders. I don't have a copy of it to show you because I'm reading it on my Kindle like I always do, but I do have a copy of this to show you which is uh, the new book coming from Church Society to all good bookshops. It won't be in bookshops um, very soon. It's going to be um, uh, available from Church Society directly uh, on Amazon as both digital and print on demand. So if you're overseas, for example, you'll be able to get hold of it relatively easily. It is uh, a series of guided reflections on the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer, with also little introductory chapters on baptism, communion and the church and a short short, uh, short catechism. So be ideal if you're preparing someone for confirmation or if you're getting confirmed, uh, ideal if you're someone who's a newish Christian, um, but also uh, a great reminder for all of us. So there we go. That's my product placement. Uh, Andrew, tell us what you've got. Uh, I've brought this. Has this been reviewed recently? Where's God in a Coronavirus World by John Lennox? I, I think he's written some fantastic um, apologetics books. Um, his one in the Oxford uh, Apologetics Books series, not this one, but the one in that same series, um, is absolutely fantastic. In this, for example, 110 million types of virus, of which 21 are harmful to humans. I didn't know that. Uh, we think virus is a dirty word, uh, but actually there's loads of them and they're necessary to life, um, he argues. In fact, uh, someone wrote uh, earlier this year to... Uh, say that viruses are the unsung heroes of our world. So uh, we couldn't live without them. Turns out we can't live without earthquakes either. I uh, didn't know that. So these things are necessary to life. And um, uh, really striking that um, to say that there are 110 million types of virus of which 21 are negative to human life. And to say that humans will either kill or 
um, in directly or indirectly more uh, people than COVID-19 this year um, breeds a very simple question, doesn't it? If we think COVID-19 is evil for the number of people it's going to kill, and if we humans are going to kill more or cause to be killed more this year, why do we treat ourselves as good and COVID-19 as evil? On what basis? But it's a brilliant book. I mean, he's warm. He's very, very clear. He basically says, I want this book to feel like we're sitting down having a cuppa together and having a chat. And is this something, this is a book that you would uh, give to a non-Christian, perhaps? Yeah, I'm not would. I, I'm going to. Yeah. And it's really Perfect. thin. It's thinner than my little finger. I mean, look at that. It's it's 60 yeah. pages. People always say that, like that's a good thing in a book. I, I like a big, fat, chunky book. But anyway. Yeah, but, but John Mark Comey's <laughs> book, even though it's really gorgeous, the 100-page version would be better. Okay. I don't know how long it is. Mine's on Kindle. I have no idea how long it is. James, what have you got? The the 100-page book that is a Christian book that I've most enjoyed in the last year uh, probably is uh, Impossible Commands by John T. Alcock. Uh, that's really, really good. Um, so that would be on my on my list. If you've not read that, that's well worth your time. No, I don't think I've even heard of it. I don't know how I've managed to miss it. What's so good about it is that he takes all of Jesus's commands where he so all the biblical commands which are Jesus telling you to do something you just think well obviously he doesn't mean that because that's impossible and going no he does he, he does mean it um and here's what to do with it so that's and also John T writes in a really really nice easy easy way <clears throat> I also recently read Gordy Knight by Dorothy L Sayers oh, oh it's a perfect book it's no like way the best book in the world. on my list really? on my list it says um, it says Dorothy says whimsy and vain series for my for my other recommendations. Has so you never read it before? No, no, no. Oh. And I've I've recently been getting into murder mystery um, okay. because of some stuff that I'm I'm writing. But um, but yeah, so there was that. There's there's another book I've been reading which has got a couple. It's got a brilliant title. The the author's name is unpronounceable, and it's called uh, oh, the second one's called Don't Point That Thing at Me. No, the first one, this one's called Don't Point That Thing at Me. And the second book's called After You with the Gun or something like that. It's but, genius. It's genius. It's a kind of um, take up of, uh, it's kind of Pink Panther-esque. Yeah. It's, uh, I can't remember. It's, Cyril, uh, it's got an extraordinary name. But either way, it's slightly too much in love with itself. So I've not actually been enjoying it. <laughs> okay, well, we won't recommend that then. <laughs> my other hot tips, though, would be uh, my wife persuaded me to watch a book she very much liked, which is Miss Pettigrew Lives uh, for yeah. a Day. And the movie of that I thought was absolutely terrific. Mm. And is the best £2.50 or three quid you could spend on on Amazon um, if you wanted but the on Amazon Prime is another lovely movie from New Zealand called Hunt for the Wilder People uh, which is a movie that my sister who lives in New Zealand made me watch because this is a big deal in New Zealand and it was absolutely delightful um, I mean it's, it's probably got some some language in it and stuff like that but uh, it was very very watchable it's got Sam Neill in it um, so Hunt for the Wilder People is a nice movie as well as Miss Pettigrew Lives for I a Day I just got a year of free Amazon Prime so maybe I will check that out thank you very much mm. uh, both of you for your recommendations and for your thoughts I will be back again next week with Lee Gatiss on the podcast um, if you are listening to us on audio you should be able to subscribe to the podcast via all good podcast providers if you're watching us on YouTube then don't forget to su subscribe to our channel and you might also want to click the notification bell so that you get told when there is a video to watch. Uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks so much for watching.